Thank you for that kind welcome. I want to thank especially President Moeller, Provost Matt Hall, and Dean Herschel York for the honor of giving this faculty address. Also, I want to say what a privilege it is uh, to work among such gifted colleagues that I have here at the seminary. I'd like to thank my wife, who is a lovely, wise, and holy woman. I want to also, I wish my parents could be here. They're 80 years old and they live in Nashville. I'm so grateful for the Christian home that they raised me in. And my uh, doctoral supervisor, Mark Seifert, his wife Janice, are also here. So I want to appreciate and thank them. The title of my lecture is The Necessity of Biblical Languages in Ministerial Training. As the fall 2021 semester was about to begin, a blog post appeared in my social media feed. The president of a major evangelical seminary had written a piece entitled, Is it a waste of time for seminary students and pastors to learn the biblical languages? It is not his response, but the fact that he had to ask this question in the first place that irks me. Do we ever see seminary professors our presidents writing blogs entitled, Is it a waste of time for seminary students to learn systematic theology? Or is it a waste of time for seminary students to learn preaching? Or is it a waste of time for seminary students to learn church history? What is it about the biblical languages that requires a public apology for their inclusion in a seminary's curriculum? Regardless of what got us here, the truth is that many people do question the value of the biblical languages for ministerial training. And I am here to contend in continuity with the curricular tradition of this great seminary, that the biblical languages are absolutely necessary. Because I specialize in New Testament studies, in this lecture I will focus mainly on Greek. I will now enumerate five reasons that the biblical languages are essential for ministerial training, followed by a consideration of four challenges in our day. First, why are the biblical languages essential? Number one, because we value the Word of God. Biblical languages are essential to our curriculum because we value the Word of God. I have in my hand an English Bible. I do not hesitate to affirm this Bible is the inerrant Word of God. In colloquial usage, no further clarification is necessary. But we must admit that in the end, English Bible translations differ dramatically in some places. In 1 John 1.1, the Net Bible translators have rendered the final five Greek words, peritulagu tesoes, with a parenthetical remark in English, quote, concerning the word of life. In the Net Bible, word, W-O-R-D, is not capitalized, indicating the Apostle John is referring to the gospel message as the word of life. On the other hand, the translators of the New Living Translation make a new sentence of the five Greek words, peritulagu tesoes, and capitalize word, W-O-R-D, resulting in he is the word capitalized of life. So we have concerning the word of life, the Net Bible, or he is the word of life, the New Living Translation. So does 1 John 1.1 refer to Jesus as the incarnate logos, or is it a reference to the gospel message received by the congregation? One could argue that John intends some level of ambiguity in his original expression, encapsulating both the Net Bible and the New Living Bible translation meanings. But the English translations do not include such ambiguity. They land on distinct and different interpretations. 
we are forced to admit that one or both translations are wrong, are deficient. In the end, we do not affirm that the English words of an English Bible are breathed out by the Holy Spirit. We do make that affirmation of the underlying Greek and Hebrew words. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, to which this faculty gladly adheres, is correct to affirm the inerrancy and complete truthfulness of the actual Greek and Hebrew words that the apostles and prophets wrote. A.T. Robertson, and prepare yourself because I'm going to quote A.T. Robertson a lot, so you might as well get used to it. A.T. Robertson no, no doubt was provocative when he said it this way. He said, the real New Testament is the Greek New Testament. The English is simply a translation of the New Testament, not the actual New Testament. It is good that the New Testament has been translated into so many languages. The fact that it was written in the Koine, the universal language of the time, rather than in one of the earlier Greek dialects, makes it easier to render into modern tongues. But there is much that cannot be translated. It is not possible to reproduce the delicate turns of thought, the nuances of language, in translation. The freshness of the strawberry cannot be preserved in any extract. Because we at Southern Seminary value the breathed out, inerrant word of God as the final authority for our Christian beliefs and practices, we must be students of the original languages. In 1518, Martin Luther's companion, Philip Melanchthon, said it this way. Since the Bible is written in part in Hebrew and in part in Greek, we must learn these languages unless we want to be silent persons as theologians. Once we understand the significance and the weight of the words, the true meaning of Scripture will light up for us as the midday sun. Only if we have clearly understood the languages will we clearly understand the content. If we put our minds to the Greek and Hebrew sources, we will begin to understand Christ rightly. Modern English Bibles go through periodic revisions. The wording in them is changed. Is this not an implicit acknowledgement that though the translations are accurate, changes must be made so that they would read more accurately? God inspired the underlying Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic words of Scripture. And if the Scripture is the ultimate authority for our lives and ministries, when disagreements happen and push comes to shove, we must ultimately appeal to those Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic grammatical constructions. Many Christian traditions, sadly, no longer affirm the Bible as uniquely authoritative. It is no surprise that we see mainline seminaries abandoning the biblical languages, in fact, when a community affirms that the Bible is no longer authoritative, it is completely logical to conclude that studying the biblical languages is a waste of time. The rejection of biblical authority goes hand in hand with the removal of biblical languages from a seminary's curriculum. At this point, I have a paragraph that illustrated this with a shocking example from a mainline seminary, but my wife, who is an Isha Hakma, a wise woman like the woman of Tekoa, told me that I should not mudsling in social media, so I have deleted that. <laughs> good, good suggestion. We'll just summarize. You can imagine what it says. And we could say, in these days of catastrophic moral and cultural decline, if we are not moored by the never-changing scripture, we will soon look no different than the culture around us. I confess, I find it embarrassing that evangelical seminaries are reducing languages to an optional part of their MDiv curriculum. When I see a CV or resume having the words with languages 
added after the letters MDiv, I cringe. I cringe because I think of the many hundreds or thousands of graduates who graduated without languages. We're sending soldiers into battle with muskets and powder horns rather than powerful and accurate weaponry. You may remember years ago when the President of the United States encouraged public schools to improve with a competitive race to the top. Removing the biblical languages from the seminary's curriculum is nothing other than a race to the bottom. It's a marketing ploy to make the MDiv faster, easier, and in the end, devoid of necessary foundational skills and knowledge. In his first convocation address at Westminster Theological Seminary in 1929, J. Gresham Machen declared, if you are to tell people what the Bible does say, you must be able to read the Bible for yourself. And you cannot read the Bible for yourself unless you know the languages in which it was written. In his mysterious wisdom, God gave his word to us in Hebrew and Greek. Hence, if we want to know the scriptures, to the study of Greek and Hebrew, we must go. So to recap point number one, the longest point, fear not. The biblical languages are essential to the seminary curriculum because we as Christians value the word of God as our inerrant and ultimate authority. God gave this word to us in Greek and Hebrew. Secondly, the biblical languages are an essential part of ministerial training because we value teaching and preaching that is both biblical and original, fresh, relevant. Many of you know that I provide free Greek instruction through an online platform called the Daily Dose of Greek. And I regularly receive fascinating emails from all over the world, people from all different Christian backgrounds. <clears throat> I received a note from a Methodist minister who lamented that many of his fellow Methodist pastors not only were not preparing sermons from the Greek New Testament, but were, not, were preaching other people's sermons as their own, apparently doing no sermon preparation at all. This Methodist pastor told me that what kept his teaching fresh, original, and engaging was the work of preparing weekly messages from the Greek New Testament and the Hebrew Old Testament. In Jeremiah 23, 29, God says, Is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? You cannot enter the blinding forge of God's word and fail to emerge with a fresh, timely, and faithful message. When people come to your house to eat, do you reheat yesterday's leftovers and serve them? Or worse, do you go to a neighbor's house and borrow their leftovers and heat them up in your microwave? perhaps sprinkling a little cheese on first to make them fresh. John Piper warns us, secondhand food will not sustain and deepen our people's faith and holiness. What is more important, continuing with John Piper's quote, what is more important and more deeply practical for the pastoral office than advancing in Greek and Hebrew exegesis by which we mine God's treasures? In his book, Clash of Visions, Robert Yarborough explores the actual handwritten notes of Martin Luther on the text of Romans. In doing so, it becomes clear that Luther did not get his ideas on righteousness by listening to a podcast or by looking it up in an excellent book like Greg Allison's Historical Theology. His understanding of God's gift of righteousness in Christ to wicked sinners exploded out of the original languages as he studied the text of Romans and the Psalms. Luther speaks of this experience himself when he writes... Although the faith and the gospel may be proclaimed by preachers without the knowledge of languages, the preaching will be feeble and ineffective. But where the languages are studied, the proclamation will be fresh and powerful. The scriptures will be searched and the faith will be constantly rediscovered 
through ever new words and deeds. So to recap, challenges uh, are the reasons here that, we, that we're, uh, the biblical languages are essential. Number one, because we as Christians value the word of God as our inerrant and ultimate authority. Number two, because we value teaching and preaching that is both biblical and original, fresh and relevant. Number three, the biblical languages are an essential part of ministerial training because we have limited time. Now, this third point may initially seem a bit counterintuitive. If we have limited time, shouldn't we just run to an English translation or homiletical helps? Allow me to offer this parable. If you have to chop a stack of kindling, is it a waste of time? Is it a waste of time to pause and to sharpen your axe? A.T. Robertson observed, if theological education will increase your power for Christ, is it not your duty to gain that added power? Never say you are losing time by going to school. You are saving time, buying it up for the future and storing it away. Time used in storing power is not lost. As I work through biblical texts and classes, I am always struck by how many excellent questions the students ask that are not addressed by commentaries. Even very good commentators neglect pivotal questions. I tell students, do you not realize that the people who write these commentaries are flawed and short-sighted persons just like you? Perhaps the published commentator did not notice the insight you're raising, or maybe he had a similar question to what you're asking, but not knowing the answer, he avoided it, the matter completely in his writing. Only by you engaging the inspired text of Scripture for yourself do you consistently have access to the most central questions and the data for the answer to those questions. Scott Hafeman noted that one hour in the text of the original languages is worth more than 10 hours in the secondary literature. To read the scripture only in translation is like kissing your bride through a veil, as one Jewish poet has said. Without a doubt, commentaries can be very helpful in wrestling through the meaning and implications of a biblical text. And with limited time, pastors want to be able to use the best and understand the best commentaries on the passages they're preaching. The best commentaries are often tracking closely the Hebrew and Greek text. And without a working knowledge of the biblical languages, the minister is shut out from the most helpful tools. My grandmother, Lucille Plummer, used to tell the grandchildren that when my father, Paul Lewis Plummer, was a young boy learning to read, if he didn't know a word or could not pronounce it, he would just say steamboat and keep reading, just you know, replacing every word he couldn't pronounce or didn't know was steamboat. I pulled off my shelf the very helpful technical commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans by John Harvey. I wondered what it would be like to read it without a knowledge of Greek grammar. Perhaps it would be like replacing every Greek or grammatical term with the word steamboat. So let's have a listen from page 91, Reflections on Romans 3.21. The steamboat, steamboat could be steamboat, but it is more likely steamboat, modifying steamboat, steamboat. The present tense is steamboat. Steamboat plus steamboat indicates the steamboat of the simple steamboat. The steamboat with steamboat is steamboat. The steamboat with steamboat is steamboat. Law and prophets occurs nowhere else in Paul. See Longenecker for, Ju <laughs> for Jewish background on the phrase, prophets is a steamboat for their writings. One can see that a minister untrained in Greek and Hebrew is at a significant disadvantage for reading and understanding the best resources. As we already noted, Melanchthon said that without the biblical languages, we will be silent persons as theologians. 
We might add that without the biblical languages, we are deaf and blind theologians too, unable to benefit from the insights of the church's best scholars and teachers. Time is limited. A working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew saves time by connecting the pastor directly with the text and directly with the best resources. One semester, after overseeing a final exam in Greek syntax and exegesis, in the grassy area just west of the Norton Building, right out here, I ran into a female student from the class. She said to me, I paraphrase, you know, Dr. Plummer, I'll never be a Greek scholar, but after two semesters of Greek, I think I can detect both sound and unsound argumentation in the commentaries, to which I say, well done, faithful student. Good, number one, why are biblical languages essential? Because we value the word of God as the inerrant and final authority for us. Number two, because we don't just value biblical teaching, we want teaching to be original and fresh and relevant. Number three, because we have limited time and we want to be connected as quickly as possible with the actual text and the best resources. Number four, the biblical languages are essential to the seminary curriculum because they are the sap and the tree which nourishes the other disciplines. What are some of the most debated topics of our day? If we are to list these issues in the top five would certainly be matters of sexuality, gender, and marriage. Within the last few years, I have been contacted multiple times by people within and outside the seminary looking for a clear and accurate understanding of the terms in the Greek New Testament related to homosexuality. You are surely aware that there are creative exegetes who claim the Bible does not condemn homosexual behavior. Such flawed assertions are often grounded in the inaccurate meanings of particular Greek and Hebrew expressions. In other words, a biblical understanding of sexual ethics must be grounded in a proper understanding of Greek semantics. If we're going to respond to an ever-shifting ethical landscape, we need Greek and Hebrew. If we're going to be effective in sharing about the true identity of Jesus Christ with Jehovah's Witnesses, we need Greek for evangelism. If we're going to reflect the structure and emphasis of the inspired authors in our own proclamation, we need Greek and Hebrew for preaching. If we're going to rightly understand the doctrine of sanctification and submit our articulation of that doctrine to the contours of Scripture, we need Greek and Hebrew for systematic theology. Ethics, counseling, evangelism, missions, preaching, music and worship, systematic theology, these and other important theological disciplines are undergirded and informed by knowledge of and submission to the Hebrew Old Testament and Greek New Testament. Why, why are biblical languages essential? One, we value the word of God. Two, we want teaching that's not just biblical, but original and fresh. Three, because we have limited time, we want to be connected directly with the text and the best resources. Four, because Hebrew and Greek are the sap that nourish the other theological disciplines. And finally, five, why do we teach the biblical languages? Because we must remain true to our heritage as Southern Baptists and specifically to the heritage of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a seminary which is trusted for truth, a truth we know from the inspired Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic words of Scripture. It's hard to imagine a more fitting spokesman for our denomination than the 90-year-old patriarch Jerry Vines. Dr. Vines is the pastor emeritus of the First Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida, and two-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention. In an email to me, which he gave me permission to use in a book and to share, he wrote to me, and this is a quote from Dr. Vines. He said, from my first class in New Testament Greek grammar, through a 50-year pastoral ministry, and now my itinerant ministry, Greek has been indispensable to me. As a pastor, I led my people through all the New Testament books many times. 
I could not have done this effectively without some working knowledge of the language. The faithful interpreter and preacher of God's word should make it his goal to be the best student of the Greek New Testament he can possibly be. To be sure, there is much to be gained from a study of English translations, but there are some insights and interpretations that can only be derived from the study of Greek. Through the years, I have pursued a constant review of new grammars, syntactical studies, and specialized books on the Greek language. This has enabled me to stay fresh and current in the language. I am daily amazed at what the Lord reveals to me through his study of the Greek New Testament. On another occasion, Dr. Vines told me that it had long been his practice to read through the Greek New Testament once a year. I've been doing that for decades. Let's think specifically about our seminary and the legacy that we have inherited. In 1923, 98 years ago, A.T. Robertson wrote this. In the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, 300 young ministers were enrolled during the past session in the various classes in the Greek New Testament. Besides those who had carried such works in previous sessions, this is nearly three-fourths of the total number of students and shows conclusively that Greek is not dead in this institution. I'm glad to report that in the fall term of 2021, just this semester, at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, we have 427 master's students enrolled in Greek classes, not counting undergraduate and doctoral students. When I think, though, beyond our denomination and our seminary, I think of a unique stewardship we've been given in the world. I was thinking this morning about my colleagues, Dr. Hamilton, Dr. Vickers, Dr. Schreiner, others. We think about the biblical studies faculty and even the, the faculty beyond, just the immense um, stewardship the Lord has given us uh, and of influence around the world. I want to speak of a small way that is being done. Through the Daily Dose online platform, our own Roberto Carrera is teaching Greek to native Spanish speakers all around the globe. Recent PhD graduate, Dr. Hanbul Kong, is providing daily Greek insights in Korean on the Gospel of Matthew to Korean pastors. Student Ivan Chagas is doing, will be doing the same in Portuguese. Voice faculty, Adam Howell and Tyler Flatt and other Daily Dose hosts have recorded thousands of instructional videos that are viewed regularly in well over 100 countries. In fact, videos from these various websites have been viewed uh, over 2.3 million times in the last year. None of this would have been possible without Southern Seminary PhD student Jonathan Algren. And, and if you listen to those names, Hanbul Kong, Adam Howell, Tyler Flatt, Roberto Correra, uh, Jonathan Algren. What we're talking about is overwhelmingly Southern Seminary faculty and PhD students who have received the baton. All we've done is receive the baton that's been passed to us in the past from previous generation of Southern Baptists and Southern Seminary faculty seeking to be faithful stewards in our own day. In July of this last summer, Southern Seminary hosted the biannual Greek and Hebrew for Life Conference, and I was overjoyed that we welcomed not only many Southern Baptist alumni, but Methodists, Presbyterians, Lutherans, even some Benedictine monks in their full monkish attire. Uh, one of them emailed me prior to the conference. This is from his email. He said, and I'm even more grateful that you and those gathering this weekend are keeping scholarship and interest in God's word alive for Catholics like me, who rightly or wrongly rely more heavily on devotional practices than we do the Bible. Oh, that more Catholics would be as interested in the Bible. What a joyful and unique stewardship we have been given in our day, not only to keep alive the legacy we have received, 
calling Southern Baptists to know and love the scriptures, but to trumpet the value of the word of God around the world and to expect a new great awakening, a new reformation, a personal revival of scripture-infused passion, spilling over to churchly renewal, and we pray societal transformation. So now we turn to four specific challenges that we face in teaching the biblical languages to the next generation of Christian ministers. Challenge number one, we must admit, we have some bad models. It is unfortunate that many students, pastors, and professors have been turned off to the value of Greek and Hebrew by the experiences they have had sitting under the preaching and teaching of those who have used the languages poorly. In the faculty lounge the other day, knowing the topic of my address, Tim Bucher related to me the saying of Charles Spurgeon, our Lord was crucified under a sign written in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And since then, many congregations have been crucified weekly by their pastors under those same languages. Sadly, we could all recount examples of misguided grammatical reflections under which we have suffered. Etymological fallacies, illegitimate totality transfer, and so on. We do not have the time to explore such, such exegetical fallacies in, in detail, and I have written about them elsewhere. But one can understand why many people question the value of biblical languages if they have not seen them used rightly. I regularly and frequently appeal to my students that explicit references to Greek and Hebrew should be quite rare in their teaching. As a general rule, Greek is like underwear. It should provide support, but not be visible. For example, in 1 John 1.5, we read, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, even a superficial reading of the Greek quickly notes a double negative with both the words uk and udemia employed, literalistically. God is light, and none darkness is not in it. It would be a misstep, in my opinion, for the pastor to offer grammatical commentary on double negatives in Koine Greek, or even mention the words uk and udemia. Better is to let the strength of this assertion infect the preacher's passion so that he can say something like, God is light. He is completely holy. And there's not even the tiniest speck of darkness or unholiness in him at all. Right? There's a wonderful feeling as a preacher standing on the solid ground of the text, actual assertions and structure. Otherwise, you might end up like the pastor whose notes were discovered and alongside the margin of the manuscript at one place was scribbled the words, weak point, yell loud here. <laughs> students sometimes ask me, students sometimes ask me how they should deal with a pastor in their home church who uses Greek poorly. Most likely, you should say nothing. You should be glad based on when and where he went to seminary that he's a faithful Christian. You should pray for him. And when he asks you about the Greek in his sermon and what you thought about it, you can honestly say, Sir, your sermon laid bare my sin. Thanks be to God. Because in honesty, your sins of pride and judgmentalism were exposed by his preached word. Challenge number one we have is bad examples. Turning to challenge number two, distraction and laziness. We may think distraction and laziness are modern problems. But nearly 100 years ago, A.T. Robertson wrote, the chief reason why preachers do not get and do not keep up a fair and needful knowledge of the Greek New Testament is nothing less than carelessness and even laziness in many cases. 
How many hours per week does the average seminary student or professor or pastor spend on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, other social media, watching Netflix or sports or doom scrolling the news? Perhaps we say that we wish we had more time to study, more time to use or revive our knowledge of the biblical languages, but is what we actually do that shows what we want to do, right? It is what we actually do that shows what we want to do. And we don't have time to explore that topic more fully, but James K.A. Smith speaks poignantly to it in his book, You Are What You Love, The Spiritual Power of Habit. We are weak creatures who find ourselves easily addicted to technology and entertainment. If we are not going to fall into a new dark age of ignorance and passivity, we need spirit-empowered habits and discipline. My good friend Ben Merkel and I have tried to provide some practical solutions to these problems in our book, Greek for Life, Strategies for Learning, Retaining, and Reviving New Testament Greek. When the book first came out, Amazon thought it was a fraternity and sorority book, but now, <laughs> but now it's in the right place, I think. And there's a companion volume for Hebrew, Hebrew for Life, with Adam Howell as the lead author on that volume. Challenge one, bad examples of a previous generation that we, does not inspire us to study. Challenge two, distractions and laziness. Challenge three, and this is a challenge specifically for language professors like myself. There's a danger that we will not adapt by shifting to the best technology and pedagogical methods. We must continue growing as teachers or we will wither and die in ineffectiveness and obsolescence. The teaching of Greek faces a challenge that economists call the problem of lock-in. And we can illustrate this with the QWERTY typewriter keyboard, the order of the keys on a QWERTY keyboard. And in giving this example, I'm drawing heavily on the podcast, 50 Things That Made the Modern Economy. In my office, I have a manual typewriter, just for decoration. One of the challenges of typing quickly on a manual typewriter is that multiple keys can become enmeshed and get stuck together, like a bunch of different clubs coming together and sticking together. So apparently, one of the purposes of the order of the QWERTY keyboard was to slow down typing to prevent the crash of the levers. A gentleman named August Dvorak patented a different keyboard layout in 1936 that multiple studies have shown allows superior typing speed, especially with modern computer keyboards where there's no concern about physical keys becoming stuck together. Even though objective studies have shown that it is economically worthwhile to retrain typists to type on Dvorak keyboards, and with computers now, it's easy to change any keyboard to work on the Dvorak pattern, and there are countless free videos online about how to retool yourself to the Dvorak keyboard, why do 99% of us still use the QWERTY keyboard? we're locked in. When we took a typing class online or in school, that's the keyboard pattern we learned. Every keyboard we buy, virtual or real, is a QWERTY keyboard. So what if it'll make us slightly faster to learn or type in the Dvorak model? It'll be annoying, slow us down for a few weeks, and is the increase of speed really worth the short-term pain? The comparison of QWERTY and Dvorak keyboards is similar to a number of issues in Greek pedagogy. Professors are locked in to inferior textbooks. Professors are locked in to a particular form of pronunciation. And then, though most of you do not know it, the battle is raging quite fiercely over what the most accurate and pedagogically sound system of Greek pronunciation is. Professors are locked into a grammar translation method when research challenges us to incorporate living language acquisition techniques, techniques to aid in the long-term retention of biblical languages. Professors are locked into in-person instruction and are slow to adapt 
class structures and pedagogical methods to online and modular students. I've written more extensively on these issues elsewhere and time limits forced me to move on. So three or four challenges behind us. Number one, bad examples. Two, distractions and laziness. And number three, specifically the challenges to language professors of lock-in to inferior methods in pedagogy. Challenge number four, it is difficult to prioritize biblical language instruction when professors and pastors whom students admires have not, who admire have not learned Greek and Hebrew or have not retained their skills. Now, if I may speak just very bluntly, I'm sure in a gathering of this size, there are multiple people in the room who either regret not learning the biblical languages or letting their skills seriously atrophy. Perhaps if you close your eyes for a moment, you'll find that in your imagination, you're staring over a valley of dry linguistic bones and you hear a voice say behind you, son of man, can these bones live? <laughs> I'm happy to tell you that they can. I've seen many people successfully revive their knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. It has never been easier. We live in an unparalleled moment of world history where it has never been easier to learn, revive, or progress in your ability to read the scriptures in the original languages. I don't think it would betray his confidence to tell you the story of one of our former colleagues, Dr. Bill Cotrere. Uh, Dr. Cotrere, a medical doctor who was on our faculty. He sadly passed away on Saturday, July the 13th, 2013. He was 62 years old. I was teaching at an underground seminary in the mountains of China when I heard the news. Bill graduated from Dallas Theological Seminary and had a solid foundation in Greek, but had allowed his skills to erode over time. 2013, this was back in the day when we mailed DVDs to online students and Bill checked out some sets for himself. He worked through two master's level courses, elementary Greek, Greek syntax. He set in my on-campus course on the Greek, uh, Greek exegesis of the Epistle of James. I was reflecting, remembering this morning, one time he came up to me after class and warned me, Rob, you really shouldn't teach when you have a fever. Uh, and that's good advice, especially in 2021 as well. Bill passed away suddenly on a bike ride. I like to imagine him instantly transported into the presence of God. And I know there was no hesitation as he joined with a heavenly chorus saying, Hagias, 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 Kurias, Hathaas, Ha Pantocrator, Ha Ein Ka Ha On Ka Ha Erkamanas. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and is, and is to come. Conclusion. Today, we've considered five reasons why teaching Greek and Hebrew is essential for ministerial preparation. We've also looked at four challenges to prioritizing that instruction. And I want to end with a biographical vignette from the life of a famous New Testament scholar. In the early 1900s, one of the most respected Greek grammarians in the world was James Hope Moulton. Some of you know his last name as one of the authors of the British multi-volume Greek reference work known as MHT, Moulton Howard Turner. Moulton's devotion to the text of scripture and the God who inspired that scripture drove him to missionary service in India. I have to step aside for a second because I want, we have to, if nothing else, understand this. The deeper someone goes in the Greek New Testament, the more he or she is propelled as a witness and as a preacher and as a missionary for Christ in the world. You think of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Or think of Granville Sharp and his fight against slavery. Or you think about our recent graduates, David and Stacy Hare, who loved the biblical languages, and it drove them to move to West Africa 
to learn a language that had never been written down that they're translating the Bible into right now. This is what happened to Moulton, but he went to India. So after he'd been in India, propelled and ignited by his study of the Greek New Testament, after some time of missionary work, he was journeying home to his native Great Britain in April 1917. Those of you up on your history know this is in the midst of World War I. His ship was torpedoed by a German submarine. Moulton survived for several days on a lifeboat, but finally passed away and was buried at sea. As I close today, I want to read to you a poem that Moulton wrote in Bangalore, India on February 21st, 1917. So just wrote this a few weeks before he died. It's a prayer in poetic form. It's a prayer that any one of our faculty, I think, could, could, could say. And I offer it up today as a closing petition to the Lord. It's entitled, At the Classroom Door. At the Classroom Door. Lord, at thy word opens yon door, inviting teacher and taught to feast this hour with thee. Opens a book where God and human writing thinks his deep thoughts and dead tongues live for me. Too dread the task, too great the duty calling, too heavy far the weight is laid on me. Oh, if mine own thought should on thy words falling mar the great message and men hear not thee. Give me thy voice to speak, thine ear to listen. Give me thy mind to grasp thy mystery. So shall my heart throb and my glad eyes glisten, wrapped with the wonders thou dost show to me. Amen.